Masechet Sukkah, Daf 51, a very exciting Daf. We're going to see the description of Simchat Bet HaShoeva. Whoever never saw that, never saw a celebration in their lifetimes. And that will lead to some other things that the rabbis say, if you've never seen this, you've never seen beauty. Uh, for example, Herod's Bet HaMikdash. And we'll bring in a little bit of archaeology in that regard. But we begin with a discussion of playing instruments on Shabbat in the Bet HaMikdash, uh, which would seem to be something that we should know for sure, whether it was done or not, but it turns out to be somewhat complicated. So I'm just going to review two sources. First, the Mishnah, which mention, mentions the flute. The flute seems to represent the whole orchestra that was not done, not played on, not on Shabbat and not on Yom Tov. But the Mishnah points out that this is the Chaliel of Bet HaSho'eva, which sounds like specifically for the celebration of the drawing of the water, that's not done on Shabbat and Yom Tov. That's less important. I mean, it's nice to do. We're going to see. This was done all night long, and then it continued into the daytime when they went to uh, gather the water. But playing music is not a, an essential part of it, and therefore does not uh, override Shabbat or Yom Tov. But we might infer from here that for sacrifices where it is an integral part of the playing music while the sacrifice are happening, maybe then you would play it, do it on Shabbat. And that's exactly um, what the Gemara is going to say. So yesterday we mentioned a Braita that actually says, oh, this is a machloket between the Biyoseh Bar Yehuda, who is more lenient. And he says it does override Shabbat. And Chachamim, they say, no, it does not override Shabbat. Now, we want to interpret this. We saw one interpretation yesterday. We're going to see a second one today. The one from yesterday was Rav Yosef, who says that this machloket is only regarding the, the instruments for a sacrifice. But when it comes to playing instruments for drawing the water, everyone agrees that you don't do it. Machloket Bashir Shil Korban. Um, that is it necessary or not, but shoeva, everyone agrees that it does not override. It's not so important. When it comes to sacrifices, maybe it's essential and maybe it's not. That was Rav Yosef's opinion. Today, we're going to see that a couple of other sources that reject Rav Yosef altogether. So that's what I'm going to jump to now. And we did the beginning of 51. So we jump right here. bar aba amar. So according to the Bimiyah, the controversy in that Braita um, is regarding drawing the water. The Bimiyah says you can even override Shabbat to play instruments to celebrate the drawing of the water. Pretty amazing. That means he's a, he goes against the Mishnah. The Mishnah is not his opinion, whereas the rabbis in the Mishnah that say only four or five days of the seven, they say this is an extra um, rejoicing, and this extra rejoicing, which is not essential, does not override Shabbat. That's where the controversy is. Aval, Beshir shel korban, avodahi Shabbat. But if you're going to talk about the instrument played during sacrifices, then everyone agrees that is part of the Avodah, it is essential, and it does override Shabbat. Okay, so Rabbi Rameyabarabah's interpretation of this is a lot more lenient to um, allow it. 
Okay, we don't have so many historical sources about this, um, but I do want to cite what we have now, just for your reference. Um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls is, is uh, surprisingly quiet about this, even though they're in during the time of the Beit HaMikdash, no one ever hints about it. There are songs of Shabbat sacrifice, but those could be sung. I'm not sure if they played instruments. However, there was one fragment from the Dead Sea Scrolls that is really very fragmentary. It has only parts of lines. Anything in brackets is filled in. So this filling in was done by two scholars uh, in an article, and their hypothesis, their um, uh, reconstruction says, a person should not take keleshir instruments, to sing with them on Shabbat, and also, that's an individual, so if they're correct, then this fragment would say that the that instruments are not played, not even in the Bet HaMikdash. Um, however, I wrote an article against this article, arguing that this reconstruction is not convincing. First of all, the Kohanim are not the ones playing instruments. Kohanim play the trumpets, Leviim play instruments. We talked about that at the beginning of the daf, uh, which was yesterday. Um, furthermore, they're reconstructing the word lishoreh bahem from another fragment that has this word and they're piecing it in, but they put it on this line and on the next line, which is really not as kind of cheating. Um, and so in any case, I think that they're reading some a later problem that the Talmud has with playing instruments back into, back into this, but I don't think it's convincing reconstruction. Really, I don't think that this says anything about playing instruments on Shabbat. Um, instead, really the most, the clearest source uh, for um, if just historical reality as probably this paragraph in Josephus, who writes, um, Josephus is an eyewitness to the Bet HaMikdash. He does not anywhere say that I went to Bet HaMikdash and you know, they played this great tune. It was a new one that this guy composed. He doesn't say anything that explicit, but he does say describing historically King David, that King David made instruments of music and taught the Levim to sing hymns. So that's all a paraphrase from uh, Tanakh. But then Josephus adds, both on that day, uh, on both on that called the Shabbat day and on other festivals. So Josephus didn't have to write this, I'm not sure where he got it from, but he's reading back and saying, King David wrote, um, made instruments and gave them to Elim to play on Shabbat and Yom Tov. So the fact that Josephus says that, why would he say that if it's not in Tanakh? Um, so I think there's a good chance that he's saying it because he saw that they did play in his day, in his day um, instruments on Shabbat, the Levim were playing, and so therefore he's retrojecting that back. Uh, so therefore, um, I think um, most or all sources, most sources point towards the playing of instruments on Shabbat for the sacrifices, and that would agree with the Bidmiyah statement here that according to, in fact, everyone, yes, they did play instruments. Okay, so that's really interesting. And now we're going to bring a challenge to the, against the Rav Yosef. The, the other the other interpretation the stricter interpretation so um, this brayta which is very similar to the one we saw yesterday but adds in the words of shoeva so according to this it's explicit that the machloket is about playing instruments during the drawing of the water. And that's where Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Yosef says, yes, even that's permitted. And Chachamim say no. So this fits perfectly with Rabbi Yirmiya, 
and is against Rav Yosef, who says everyone agrees that you don't blame Shemesh during Shoeva. So, Tiyufta, the Rav Yosef, Tiyufta. So, that is a rejection of that line. Now, we want to go further and reject Rav Yosef even on a second count. Lema Beshir Shel Shoeva, who de Pelige, Aval Beshir Shel Korban, Divra Kol, Toche et Hashabbat, Lema Teve Tiyufta, the Rav Yosef, Betarte. So let's go one step further from the fact that they argue about this case. Maybe we can infer that they would all uh, agree that regarding Korban, that you uh, do play instruments during Korban, even on Shabbat. And everyone would agree to that. And if we, if we, if we do make that inference, that would reject Rav Yosef's opinion about that topic as well, because he said that is a machloket regarding during korban. And here we can infer that everyone would agree that you would play instruments. So can we do that? Um, so you got me on one count that, uh, you know, that there is a machloket on shoeva. So I have to admit to that one. But maybe, maybe they argue on both, in both areas. Rabbi Yoseh would say you always play instruments, both for korbanot and drawing water, and Chamim would say you never play instruments in either case, and therefore I can still be correct on the other issue. And how come the Baraita only mentions one case of drawing water? To show you the strength of Rabbi Yoseh that he permits even in that case, so that's why it focused on that. Otherwise, you might think not. Okay, so Rabbi Yosef so far defended himself, but then we're going to reject it from our Mishnah. Right, well, that was all based on the Braita. Here's our Mishnah. So since our Mishnah says this one, a beta Shoeva, does not override Shabbat, but that, that sounds like there's another one that does override Shabbat, which would be Korban. So no mane. Who is the author of Amishnah? It can't be the Biyose because he disagrees with Amishnah. He thinks you could play instruments even for drawing water. Rather, Amishnah must be, in fact, Rabbanan. And yes, we can infer from, from our Mishnah that, that the Rabbanan only prohibit uh, draw, playing instruments during drawing water, but they would permit playing instruments during the Korban. And so, therefore, Rabbi Yosef's opinion is rejected, rejected in both areas based on the second Baraita and the Mishnah. Good question. Yeah, Rabbi, what would be technically wrong with playing instruments on Shabbat? Like, what's the Melacha they are committing by playing instruments? Uh, yeah, that's a very important question. It's not one of the 39 Melachot. Um, the Babli says because you might uh, break and then you might have come to fix it. But of course, uh, as we said earlier, any Gezerah Shema is, um, is a Babli, not earlier than the Rabbah, who says it um, in the context of Mikveh and, and then apply it to other contexts. So it seems like, you know, what would be the problem even before that? They're in Tanaitic sources. There's a problem of making noise on Shabbat, uh, you know, clapping, stomping. Uh, using a, a mill, anything that makes a lot of noise is no good. Shabbat should be a quiet day. The Babli then distinguishes between musical sound and noisy, annoying sound. 
But I, I think the most likely is that in the original sources, Shabbat's supposed to be a day of quiet, peace and quiet. And so therefore, instruments uh, go against the spirit of the day um, uh, because they're loud. Uh, so I, I, think that's, I think that's the idea. Um, just the, later on halacha, they become a little bit more uh, technical and, um, and separate between noise, which is not, not allowed, and music, which is also not allowed, but then for a different reason of fixing instruments. So I think it's one of those kind of shivut area, not a, not a, not a full melacha that one would get, uh, have to bring a korban for. Uh, good. Now, okay, getting back to a different machlok, related machlok that Rav Yosef actually brought in. We rejected Rav Yosef, but we were still uh, discussing the reasons that Rav Yosef was uh, basing himself upon. So there was one opinion that says the main part of singing is in fact the instruments, and therefore instruments are necessary, integral. That opinion would say that they do override Shabbat for uh, at least for Korban. But when Chizkiyah cleaned up the Bet Hamikdash and then um, and he was making sacrifices, so when he began, he uh, he began to sing um, songs to God with the trumpets um, with the instruments that David had made. So here you go. There's a description of singing accompanied by not only trumpets, but also other Davidic instruments of music. So this proves that uh, instruments are essential. Otherwise, the pasuk wouldn't have to say it. Right? You don't have to say everything Chizkiyah did. If it mentions it, it must have been an essential part of it. Okay, that's a nice proof. Who says that a cappella singing is the main, the main thing and the music is just a side point that makes it a little nicer, but it's not necessary. And therefore you would not do it on Shabbat. Regarding when King Shilama built the Bet HaMikdash, he did, he had the, the trumpet players uh, playing in unison with the singers. So here you see that instruments are not mentioned. Trumpets, everyone agrees that you need trumpets because that says in Sefer Bemidbar explicitly. Um, good. So the trumpet here, trumpeters are called mechaserim. The, the printed edition has the two sadis, which is the ketiv in the pasuk. Um, but we read it, ketiv as it with one sadi. Okay, anyway, that's his proof. Now, what is each going to do with the other pasuk? The one that says the main thing is regarding is the vocals. What is it going to do with the pasuk regarding with chizkiyah that says uh, that there's instruments? This is the beginning of the pasuk is telling you what's necessary, the vocals. And the rest of the pasuk says, and they also happen to have instruments because that sweetens the sound of the singing. But it doesn't mean it's necessary part. It was just describing how extra beautiful it was. Um, good. I mean, these are not pesukim in the Torah, right? It just could be describing how much Rizkiah loved, you know, Bet Hamikdash and wanted to make it beautiful and went extra mile. And was the one who says that you need instruments going to say about the pesuk regarding Shelama, where it just says they had trumpets and singers? 
מה מחסדים בכלי? המשוררים בכלי. The singers are similar to the trumpeters. Just like trumpeter, how do you play a trumpet? You need an instrument. So to the singers, where they must have had instruments playing along with them. And it doesn't mention them because they're integral to the singing is the musical accompaniment, just like you can't play a trumpet without a trumpet. And that's what they would do with the pasuk. Okay, uh, so it's very nice uh, to you know, be looking uh, for hints at this in the various historical descriptions of the singing in the Bet HaMikdash, but it turns out there are pasukim both ways. Excellent. Okay, so anyway, um, our um, tentative historical conclusion until we find something better is that they probably did play in instruments, in fact, for the sacrifices at least. Next Mishnah, famous Mishnah, if you've never seen the celebration or with the water drawing, you've never seen the celebration in your life. Um, this is whole long description. It's interesting that it's even in the Mishnah. It's not quite a halacha. Like you don't have to do these things. And certainly we don't do them anymore. I think the Mishnah wants to uh, get us excited about how amazing and wonderful it was. So that number one, we should miss it, that we don't have it. But also that in our own way, as much as we can, we should make celebrations and singing and dancing and enjoy the holiday. Um, and also to show how much they love loved the mitzvot. So on the end, the end of Yom Tov, right, again, because they didn't celebrate it on Yom Tov. They brought the water every day, even on Yom Tov, but they didn't do the celebration. So therefore, um, on Motzei Yom Tov, the beginning of Cholom um, they would go to down to Ezrat Nashim. It's called down because there are 15 steps that separate. Uh, we have, here's a picture. So this is called this every where they where all these people are is called Ezrat Nashim. Ezrat Nashim is not what it means today. It's not the ladies section or ladies gallery. Um, everyone was here, men and women uh, were gathered here. The reason it's called Ezrat Nashim is because generally women did not pass this point. This is Nicanor's gate after you go up the 15 steps. And that goes into Ezrat Israel, which is just a short, a few feet. And then that leads directly into the Azara itself, where the Mizbeach is, that only Kohanim can go there. So that, so it's called Ezat Yisrael because Yisrael is allowed up to there, but no further. This is called Ezat Nashim because everyone was allowed here, uh, including Nashim, but it wasn't, it wasn't segregated most of the time, uh, except for now. So they would go to Ezat Nashim and they would make this uh, huge um, building project Okay, the first thing they need, since they're going to be partying all night, is they need light. So they would make these big towers, um, and they would, on each the top of the tower, they had four lanterns and they had a giant ladder and so they had the young kohanim for them for each of the towers would go up there with jugs of oil here's the kid it looks for pretty precarious and they would continue filling up those um those la lanterns so that they would be very bright and last all night with 120 log um for each 
מבלעם מכנסי כהנים ומהם יניהם, הם היו מפקיעין ובהן היו מדליקין. The wicks were made out of the worn out pants and belts of the כהנים, and uh, that is what they would light with. Uh, it's nice to take something that was once used for a mitzvah, and now it's not usable anymore, and they get to use it for the secondary mitzvah. These were so tall and so bright that they lit up all of Jerusalem. So, you know, everyone got to uh, get enjoyment from this. The pious people and the men of good deeds would be dancing uh, in front of the, well, people or in front of the land, uh, in front of the lamps. And they were holding flaming torches. So, you know, even these uh, great sages, they knew their juggling tricks and uh, they did all kinds of acrobatics with uh, flaming torches. This reminds me of Rabbi Sammy Kasten's trick with the cigarette uh, dance that he always did at weddings, right? So that's the, maybe that's the avukot, and maybe that's where he got it from. And so they would be singing praises to Hashem. And while they were doing that, the Levim were playing instruments. This is important because yesterday there was a three-way machloket about who plays instruments. Was it the slaves or was it the uh, families of Israel married to Kohanim or Levi'im? Over here, this uh, says explicitly that they were Levi'im, in fact. Okay. Um, and they were playing all these instruments, uh, including lyres, harps, cymbals, and trumpets. Uh, 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 oddly enough, the flutes are not mentioned, even though they were the main uh, main attraction in the previous Mishnah. Um, countless orchestra, there were 15 steps, which were parallel to the 15 Shira Ma'alot, because Shira Ma'alot, the song for the steps. And so they were standing all around there. Again, in this picture, um, I don't know where the, okay, they would be here. I'm not sure why they didn't draw them in. Um, this is, the, the living would stand here only for this. When they did a korban, the living would be inside the azara, which is behind, behind here. Uh, but for Simchat Bet that was for more for public and wanted everybody to come and be able to enjoy. So they, they stood on the steps. Okay, that picture was of, the, of this scene. So that what they would be doing all night, playing instruments, dancing, and singing praise. But then, um, uh, yeah, okay. But then in the morning, the, there were two Kohanim, and they would stand all the way on that, in that gate, which is Sha'an Nikanor, um, that the one that goes down to Zatanashim, with two trumpets. When the word geber either means the rooster or the temple crier, the guy who would cry out and say, Oh, it's a uh, first light has been has shown. So then when they heard that, just like we do on Rosh Hashanah, they did a long and then short blast and then a long blast. And he and then they went down five steps till they got to the ten steps. We'll see the Gemara. They go to ten steps, whatever. Halfway, somewhat as part of the way down, they blow again. In other words, they make it a very slow, deliberate 
procession, stopping every uh, once in a while, playing the trumpets again. When they get to the Azara. Now, actually, they get to the Azara as soon as they pass through the gate. Um, but what it means is when they get to the floor. And that's what you have in this, in this uh, version even though it's in parentheses. That explains it. When they got to the floor of Israel, they, they blow the trumpets again. And they would continue straight out to the eastern gate, right? They would, um, just, you know, they're walking from west to east and they would walk out that gate, the, the main gate. Uh, Okay, so when they got to the outer gate, uh, the one in this picture that like the 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 uh, painter is, is would be over here. That's where the gate would be. Um, looking at, he might be standing in that gate. Uh, they would all turn around. And um, they would turn around from and face west, and they would say, our forefathers in this place, they turned their backs to the Hechal, and they faced east because they worshipped the sun. So they're making reference to the times of old when people did Avodah Zarah um, in the Bet HaMikdash. This is all a quote from Yechezkel, who's describing that very scene. In fact, probably the Bet HaMikdash actually faces west precisely for this point, so to, for this point, so that we don't face east when we're serving and no one would think that we are serving the sun, so that we face with our backs towards the sun on purpose. Nowadays, you go to the Kotel, well, now we're on the other side, so we're facing the Kodesh Kodashim, happens to be facing east also, but uh, we, uh, we don't have any idolaters anymore uh, worshiping the sun, so I don't think we have to worry about that. So and since they were, because they were marching out from west, going east, it kind of looks bad. It looks like they're putting their backs towards the Echal and they're going towards the sun. So just to clarify that they're doing this as part of a procession to go get water, but then they're going to turn around and they're going to come back. So that's why they emphasize this, um, uh, that uh, they're, they're doing this all, Lishem Shamayim. And that's why when they turn around, they say to you, God, and the Buddha say, they would say a double thing. We are to God and our eyes are towards you, right? Our, our attentions are for you. And also the direction of our eyes are, are towards you. Now we're going to turn around, but we will be right back. Good. That is the Mishnah, beautiful description. And now further elaboration. That's a quote from the Mishnah. But now we're going to add two more items. If you didn't see Jerusalem in its glory, you've never seen a beautiful city. If you haven't seen the Beta Mikdash in its glory, then you've never seen beautiful architecture. So we want to know more. Which temple? Uh, because there were a lot of them. You're talking about the first Beta Mikdash? The first Beta Mikdash we know, um, you know, was a lot smaller than this one. Are you talking about the second Beta Mikdash at the beginning when it was first built? That for sure not, because we know from Sefer Ezra Nehemiah that when it was built, the elders were crying when they saw the new second Beta Mikdash because it was so much smaller 
and less glorified even than the first Bet HaMikdash. So for sure, that wasn't the most beautiful building ever. Rather, we're talking about Herod's temple, um, Herod the Great. I mean, he's known to be the great, but he was actually a great murderer, a very problematic figure, killed his wife and many children um, and many sages. Uh, nevertheless, he was responsible, whether he did it L'shem Shamayim or for his own glory, he liked, he wanted to be popular and have people come from all over the world and say, wow, Herod the great builder, which happened because every tourist stop in Israel was built by Herod. Um, so he began this uh, building project and um, put a lot of time and money into it. Didn't even finish during his lifetime, it continued afterwards. So this was a really a rebuilding of the Bet HaMikdash um, from whatever it was before. We know very little of what stood before uh, beforehand, but we know we have the Kotel, that's the outside wall. And you know we have remnants um, archaeological remnants um, of not not of the Bet Hamikdash itself, but of the area. So you know we kind of know a lot about it, and we have a lot of descriptions from the Mishnah from Josephus. So therefore, Rav Chista says with this this beautiful building is referring to the last standing. Uh, it only stood for a short time uh, before it was destroyed. From the time it was finished, maybe it was twenty years that it was uh, people that people got to use it and enjoy it. Okay, so Bemai Benaye, tell us a little bit more about the description of this Bet HaMikdash. How, what did he use to make it? He used uh, stones, uh, like gray marble, and green gray marble, and white marble. Some say three colors um, that he used uh, both. He used a greenish and also blue and white. And they weren't they weren't made in a straight line, but rather one a little out and one a little bit in, protruding, so that the plaster that held them together would take better. You could put the plaster behind, and then you you can see the color of the stone would be highlighted. Herod wants to make it even more beautiful and cover the marble with gold. And then the rabbi said, no, leave it without gold. It's good just like it is with that blue and green and white and the way that it came out and in and the protrusions, it looks like waves of the sea. Uh, so it's just, it's, it's, it can't be any more beautiful than it is now. Uh, so this is interesting that the, the rabbis here or quoting themselves, giving Herod advice. Um, and I think this is a way of saying that even though Herod was a very evil person in uh, his political and personal life, nevertheless, he did take upon this project of rebuilding the most glorious Bet HaMikdash ever. And the fact that the rabbis advised him uh, means that they accepted this. So sometimes even a bad, bad, a bad person can contribute something good. And I think the rabbis are kind of authorizing the fact that this was a legitimate Bet HaMikdash, um, even uh, despite him. Okay, regarding this marble, there is actual some, there actually we found, archaeologists, archaeologists found the following, these stones. This is, these were found in the sifting project. If you ever gone to Israel, you might have done this yourself. A lot of the dirt that was thrown out from the Temple Mount, people are sifting and they found um, little pieces of marble. And you can see that they're all different colors 
And so we can try to reconstruct, this is just hypothetical reconstruction that maybe looked like you know, a pattern of colors. Um, this doesn't have the in and out. So something like that, uh, but it certainly would have been very beautiful. Harad definitely was a good builder. Now we're going to add another one in another Braita. If you've never seen this, um, uh, uh, this comes from two words, diplos uh, meaning double, stoa meaning colonnade, a double colonnade. So this, that's what the, the synagogue of Alexandria was called because it was so big and Kind of like the when you go to the you know stadiums, Roman stadiums, and you have the columns upon columns to hold up a lot of uh, you know second stories and um, make it beautiful. That is in Alexandria had this giant synagogue. Um, if you've never seen that synagogue, you've never seen the glory of Israel. It's amazing to put this synagogue description back to back with the Beit Hamikdash. Right? It's almost like saying, "All right, we don't have Beit Hamikdash, but..." We have this amazing Bet Knesset here in Alexandria. It was like a giant basilica, like palace with one colonnade behind another colonnade. Uh, remind me of like uh, some of the Moorish architecture of those great mosques. How many people did it hold? Sometimes. Maybe for the high holidays, there were 1.2 million people uh, that it could hold. That's a lot of uh, seat sales. Uh, okay, this is probably exaggeration. Uh, a little bit, you know, maybe it was uh, 1.1 million. I don't know. But this would be like, you know, 20 times Yankee Stadium. So um, uh, hard to believe that they could build any structure that could hold that many people. We don't have anything like that. Um, not even in the modern world. But um um, but uh, anyway, the point is, I think by saying this, it holds like all the whole community, all of Israel, everybody's there. That's how glorious it is. Uh, same way the Bet HaMikdash is the central place of worship for all of Israel. This, in their minds, this Bet Knesset was that. There were 70 big chairs and golden chairs there for in uh, parallel to 71, parallel to the 71 judges on the Sanhedrin. This is unbelievable. Where is the Sanhedrin? It's supposed to be in the Beit HaMikdash. Um, and uh, yet, so this is another way that this Bet Knesset is being paralleled to the Beit HaMikdash. You know, were there actually judges that sat in the chairs or the empty chairs? I imagine someone sat in them, which means that they had some kind of uh, pseudo Betin Hagadol there. Okay. And each one of those uh, chairs was at least 21,000 talents of gold. And there was a wooden bima. A bima uh, we know as the chazan's table. Um, this is actually a Greek word, bima, and it comes from the platform that was used at, upon which the witnesses and defendant would stand in a court trial. So this is a very important word as it gets transferred into Hebrew and becomes where the chazan is. It means that tefillah, as the word lehit palel actually does mean to judge, is an act of being judged. And we are pleading on behalf of ourselves. We're like lawyers 
right? The chazan is like a lawyer pleading to the judge um, uh, uh, on a bima. Um, maybe that's why it was made out of wood uh, in order to uh, reflect that that um, that um, that symbolism. The chazan, which in those days didn't mean the singer, but rather the head of the, the of the synagogue, like the shamosh, would stand upon it on this platform with scarves in his hand. So you see, this is not actually the chazan's table. This is the, the this type of chazan, this, this uh, prayer leader, um, he would actually stand on top of the stage. It was so big, they couldn't hear the shaliach sibur say the bracha. So in the back, so they couldn't know, didn't know when to say amen, but they could see if he waved a bright flag. And so when he waved it, they would all answer amen which is an important halacha, means that you can answer amen even if you don't hear the beracha, because, well, they know what they're up to, right? So they know what beracha is being said, and they are in the same room also. Uh, so you can't necessarily learn from here the, well, whatever, I won't get into, you know, saying amen over Zoom or over telephone, right? But this is one of the sources that uh, are used for, for that. And they didn't say it all mixed together, no mixed eating, but rather they separated by profession, goldsmiths, silversmiths, blacksmiths, coppersmiths, and weavers. Every industry uh, sat in their own section. It's really one of the most beautiful descriptions ever, anywhere that when a poor person would come, he would, and a poor person, he has some skills from wherever, from beforehand. So if he was a, if he was a weaver, a very poor man's job, but still he goes to the weaver section and he talks to the people and someone would give him a job in his shop and set him up, and that way he wouldn't have to live off of charity. And so the Bet Knesset was not only a place of prayer and gathering and judgment, apparently, because there was a Sanhedrin there, but also it was a way for to help people get jobs. And truth is, until today, um, a lot of times you see in Bet Knesset people to get to know each other, and uh, you know someone needs a job, and so you know someone says, "Oh, ask that guy; he's looking for someone." And you know, I know many, many, many stories of people that are helped in their careers in different ways through coming to Bet Knesset. That's not the reason you should come, but it's a, a side benefit. David, uh, is is this um, synagogue different than the the Temple that was in Egypt during the second. Yes, it is different. Period. Yeah, there were all. There's also reference to two different temples where they actually made sacrifices during the time of the Beit Hamikdash. One for sure, they made sacrifices. So those were these were um, probably both. Uh, those were breakaway Beit Hamikdash, and that was much that was much earlier, uh, a much earlier time period. This. Um, probably describing a later, this is describing a later time period. This is Alexandria. Alexandria was not even a city until Alexander the Great established it. So this is towards the, this would be towards the second half of the second Metamikdash period. Those, um, those stories, one of them at least is much earlier. 
Um, yeah, so it's different. Amar Abaye, Bechulahu Ketalinhu Alexandros Mokdon. Going to end with this story that all those people, after we described this great, glorious Bet, uh, um, Bet Knesset, and all the people, and they helped the poor, when Alexander the Great came, he killed all of them. Wow, sounds really tragic. Why were they punished? Sounds like they were doing very good things. Because they violated Pasuk that says, you should not go back the way you came. You're not allowed to go to Egypt. Right? Don't get horses there. You're not allowed to live in Egypt. And they lived in Egypt. So they deserved punishment. Okay, this is very harsh punishment for, even though it is a halakha, and it's also a very difficult halakha because, you know, none other than Harambam lived in Egypt. And, uh, and uh, he did seem to have felt bad about it. He tried to live in Israel, but was not able to uh, be successful there. And uh, I think he said he had to live in Egypt because he, the community needed him, the sultan needed him. You know, he wouldn't be able to accomplish his goals of uh, teaching Torah and being the, the leader of all world jury um, if, if not, if, if, if he lived in Israel. And so that was, uh, that was important for him. So for greater mitzvah, um, you know, he, he did. And there was always a, a, a strong community in Egypt uh, until today. I think the current president wants some Jews to come back. He's inviting them back to have a community there again. But, you know, until uh, 50 years ago, there, was, uh, there, were, there were very strong, beautiful communities there. And so according to this, Alexander the Great destroyed it. Now, this doesn't make any sense because there was no city before Alexander the Great came. So there was no Jewish community for them to destroy. Also, Alexander the Great, what we do know about him is he had a meeting with the Kohen Gadol and it was a good meeting and he respected the Jews and he told them that they can do whatever they want and they can follow their ancestral customs. That's recorded in Talmud and in Josephus. So there's no reason to think that Alexander the Great was particularly anti-Semitic and would have destroyed this uh, the, the people in the city. So um, this uh, story is true, but it's anachronistic. It wasn't about um, Alexander the Great, but rather about the city of Alexander later and later times. Um, let's, um, yeah, let me just finish this source and then I'll show you what it's actually referring to. Ki ata, when Alexander the Great came to Alexandria, he saw, I found the Jews, they were reading a book. They were reading a, a, a Torah. Hashem will bring you a nation from afar. It's Parashat HaShavua. Okay, good. Nice Parashat HaShavua coincidence. He saw them reading in the curses. Hashem will bring a nation from afar, from the end of the earth, as a vulture swoops down. Uh, a nation whose, yeah, whose tongue you don't understand. He says, oh, you know what? I came early. I arrived earlier than I thought. My journey was supposed to be 10 days in, by ship. Uh, from came from Macedon. And I had a good wind and I got here in five days. So based on that, he said, see, this pasuk that says a faraway enemy will come quickly, like a, as fast as a vulture. Do you see that now this curse against Israel is being fulfilled in me? I'm supposed to destroy them. And so he did. 
Okay, so does that does that, does Alexander know the Torah? He understood the Hebrew. Who explained it to him? Right. I think that this is a, a, the the rabbis applying this midrash, saying that Alexander the Great, his, this destruction was destined to be. It came from Hashem as a punishment, and uh, therefore there's still hope because the Torah says if we make teshuvah, we can still come back. So I think that's the import of this. But Alexander the Great. Um, never came to Alexandria because and found the Jews there because he built the city. So what is this referring to? Um, it's referring to a much later event during Roman times that we do know about called the Kitos War. Uh, not, not so many people know about this, but it's well documented. It happened during the reign of Trajan. And maybe that's who it's referring to uh, when it says Alexander the Great, the Roman emperor before Hadrian, but also um uh not not a very nice guy um and when trajan was busy with a different war the jews in egypt and libya and cyprus rose up and destroyed many pagan temples and killed their worshipers so apparently in these places and especially in alexandria there was a tremendous amount of anti-semitism and tension between jews and their neighbors and we know that going back to philo who had to plead on their behalf many stories and so at one point the Jews were like fed up and they went and rioted against uh, their pagan neighbors. And then the non-Jews retaliated. The Roman army had to come in and brutally stopped it. And many people on both sides were killed. This is a description of it in uh, Dio Cassius. It's, uh, it's too uh, horrible and graphic to read. He also is uh, exaggerating, likely very much exaggerating the tumult, um, but this is uh, for sure, this is a uh, inscription from a bathhouse that um, uh, is in, in commemoration of how the city had to be rebuilt after the tumult of the Jews, the disorder that the Jews caused. So this is um, you know, remembered um, here. Diocassius says that 220,000 non-Jews were killed. Again, probably an exaggeration, I'm sure an exaggeration, the point is still a lot and in retaliation tens of thousands of jews were also killed so when the gemara says here that there was this great destruction of the jewish community in alexandria by a foreign ruler um this is describing a historical event uh, they're just anachronistically attributing to alexander but what they mean is the greco-roman rulers um that uh that came about 400 years later uh, so well, a lot of interesting history in this page and um, uh, a lot of important lessons about how the rabbis later on processed both the good, like the good that Hera did, and, uh, and the evil, that even though they had these terrible pogroms, but these are from Hashem, and therefore uh, we still have hope for the future. Amen.